Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. Ah, big Sunday. I haven't been with you all in weeks. Hurricane Lee knocked out the power a couple weeks back, and I preached to an empty room. It was traumatic. It took me, <laughs> took me right back. You know, those feelings come up. You, yeah, yeah, Alex was here. He was a great congregation. For, I think he was on his phone the whole time. And then last week, uh, I was not a vacation. I was preaching at Crossroads Baptist Church, filling in for Pastor Caleb Kelly. Crossroads is one of our Fellowship Atlantic partner churches, so it was an opportunity to step in and help them out. And then I raced back here for the members meeting at 1 o'clock last Sunday, and that was a good meeting. We heard news from Honduras. Applications are due, by the way, if you want to go on the trip. Updates on the solar project out here. We saw the latest power bill. Uh, new windows have been installed. We're going to replace the rest of them too. Cheryl is coordinating a warming center team uh, to serve the community in case of emergency power outages. Our new generator is set to arrive in January and it's going to be installed so we won't have to worry about power. And if the community is struggling without power, needing a cell phone charge or some heat or a warm meal, we're going to be able to offer that to them. Steve updated us on the caretakers ministry, chance to use your gifts to work on the facility and the property. Uh, he also updated us on bereavement ministry, the huge opportunity that we have when people are suffering loss, the loss of a loved one, to step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus. We got to celebrate the band and the tech team, and uh, we're purchasing a new drum kit to replace this old one. I, I don't know if you can see the tape that's holding on different parts of this kit, but I think it was purchased in the year 2000. You remember that, the turn of the millennia? So it's like over 23 years old, it's time to be replaced. So we're purchasing a new one and I think we're gonna get to help out our brothers and sisters at Open Arms with this kit. So that's gonna be pretty cool too. Um, we brought in a new member as well and we're going to get to celebrate that next Sunday. So make sure you're here for Thanksgiving Sunday as we offer the right hand of fellowship to a new member and her family and that's gonna be a celebration too. Lots to be thankful for. One of our core values is engagement, and that's what this conversation really boils down to. Engagement comes down to practicing an active faith, leaning in, stepping in, engaging in, getting involved, putting your gifts to work, being a part of the ministry. Maybe the next step for you is to respond to the gospel today. Our band, the songs, Alex with the Lord's Table did a great job of outlining the gospel for us today. Maybe you haven't been obedient in baptism yet. Maybe you've never had a conversation about membership. Maybe you're not part of a life group. Maybe you need to step into serving with the church in the community. And can I encourage you, lean into this. If you're going to be busy doing something, be busy getting involved in the building of the kingdom of God here in this local church and in this community Commit to being God's light here. If you're going to engage your energy, why don't you plug in here? One more little rant before I preach. Is that okay? I hear too often the question, how come the church doesn't have a ministry to... How come the church doesn't do anything for... And here's my short answer. 
if you stepped up to the plate, maybe we could. And I, I say it a little more diplomatically. I say it like this. Well, hey, it sounds like you've got a desire for that. And that's a good thing to point out. Hey, have you ever thought about helping, being involved, stepping in, coordinating, leading, making some phone calls, getting your protection protocol and jumping up into the Journey Kids program? I would say it more like that. But really what we're getting to is you need to engage in something for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of eternity. Ha! I'm going to get myself in trouble. But... If you believe in something, you're going to fight for it, right? You're going to stand for it, engage in it, celebrate it. Bring it. Let's walk the walk. We're going to talk about that today. Your family, your church, and the world. That's our topic. And as Steve said last week, it's a big topic. A lot of little bites is how you eat an elephant, right? Week one, talking to myself in an empty room like a crazy person and missing my church family. We talked about the family connection and communion between the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Before the foundation of the world, family was designed by God and exemplified by God before humanity ever existed. No matter whatever your experience has been or will be or is with your earthly father or father figures in your life or the family that you're a part of or not a part of, God is a perfect heavenly father. And you can know the love of a perfect father through Jesus Christ today. Steve spoke last Sunday. The first human family was a broken family. It took one generation for murder to enter the story. Guess what? Every family after that family is a broken family, including your family. Sin entered the world. Genesis 3, guilt, shame, fear, hiding, blaming, denial, and then God's pronouncement. And I like how Steve said it. Pain, dysfunction, more pain, toil, and death. Sounds good, doesn't it? Genesis 4, jealousy, domestic violence, murder, Steve's comment was, so it's come to this. We shouldn't be shocked when sin enters the story that it ends up here. This is why we need to exercise grace when it comes to talking about family. Because every family is broken. If you're thinking, well, you know, that's, that's fine for you guys to call your family broken, but my family, we've got everything together. It's probably the biggest red flag to say that your family is in fact broken like every other family that there could possibly be. There's so much brokenness and dysfunction. That's where the good news begins, isn't it? When we admit our place, realize where we're at, sinful humanity in the hands of a righteous God. Today we're talking about the forces against the family. Do you realize there is an evil one who is against you and against your family? Everyone say there's a snake in the garden. Thank you. You're with me? Genesis 3. Would you turn there? Genesis 3. My chapter heading is entitled The Fall. It's a great passage for October 1st, for autumn. Are you guys slow this morning? or Do you not like my puns? Are they too bad, Jeff? <laughs> the Fall. I don't like snakes. And I had forgotten that a few years back, my daughter found a snake in the wood pile that's right next to our garden. 
And I, I thought through this. I thought, I'll put the wood pile far enough from the garden that I can drive the lawnmower through, you know? <laughs> Forward thinking. And then every time I went through there after seeing that snake, I would tiptoe gingerly through that area because my daughter had shown me that snake. She wasn't scared at all about the snake, but I, I don't like snakes. And to make matters worse, my wife used these little sticks to prop up the plants in the garden, like tons of them, and the tomatoes were right there and they were getting big, so all of these sticks. And some of the ones that hadn't been used or fallen or broken, they're just tucked in the grass, these little sticks next to the raised bed. You know what I'm talking about? So you'd walk through there and there'd be like, you know? I don't like snakes. Do you like snakes? Okay, there's a snake in the garden. Genesis 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty. He didn't make scrapbooks. It means more cunning, more sneaky, more tricky than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, why the woman? We're special. <laughs> uh, yes, you are. I didn't mean it like that. I, I don't even know who said that. I just heard the lady's voice over there. Um, is it because she's more emotionally engaged than the man? Is it maybe because the snake thought that the woman would have more empathy for the snake than a man would? Is it because the man is too stubborn to listen to directions? <laughs> I know where I am. Mankind is perfect at this point, remember. This is before the fall. The snake says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Oh, that's a good point. What is the snake attacking here? God's credibility. God's words, God's promise, God's rule. Is God actually faithful enough to stick with his rule? Or does Eve believe in the faithfulness of God's word enough to stick with it? He's questioning God's credibility. That's exactly right. He doesn't go, God never said that. He's more crafty. He's more cunning. He's more tricky. He's sly. He asks the question, and when you're in conversation and you ask a question, you're putting yourself in control of the conversation. And you're actually giving the other person the semblance of control because they think, oh, I get to answer this question, but really, you're guiding the conversation, aren't you? That snake slithers in there and asks the question, puts in that little seed of doubt. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. I'm not as worried about that being dry as when I ate that bread the other week. That was funny. There's more to that story. If you want to hear it, I'll tell you, I'll tell you later, but... That's close, Eve. That's really close. Here's what God actually said. Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat, you will surely die. He doesn't say anything about touching it. Where does the touching it part come from? 
Do you think maybe Adam and Eve talked amongst each other? Maybe Eve came up with this herself and she thought, you know, if we can't eat it, maybe we just shouldn't touch it. We'll add this rule on top of God's rule so that we won't break God's rule. But at the end of the day, it's really adding to God's word, isn't it? Isn't isn't this a form of legalism? Here's God's rule. Just to make sure I make it to God's rule, I'm going to add my own rule on top of God's rule just to make sure, right? And she adds that in. We cannot even touch it. God's command to not eat the tree was in Genesis 2, 16 and 17. Here's a thought that Andy just pointed out. When the man was working in the garden, God made this rule in the presence of the man who was working in the garden. And the woman is not created until Genesis 2, 18 and the verses following. So God first gave this command to Adam before Eve was created from his rib in his side as he's in that deep sleep. God gave Adam this rule directly. Then, the Bible says, God saw that it was not good that man should be alone. So here's the implication I'm making. Perhaps God clarified the rule and reiterated the rule with Eve and Adam after he created Eve. Or perhaps God left the responsibility to the man to give God's truth to his new wife. Either way, Eve gets the message, doesn't she? Because she knows the rule. She adds that touching bit, but she knows the rule. So either God told her, or Adam fulfilled his responsibility to speak God's truth to his wife. Genesis 3 and verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Isn't that what the devil wanted all along, to be like God? I will be like the Most High, he says. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Little Tarzan and Jane. Leaf skirts. Kilt. Kilt, maybe. 1 John 2.15 Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. I bet that fruit tasted so good, didn't it? And spoke to the rumbling in Eve's tummy. Did their tummies rumble before the fall? And the desire of the eyes, I bet that fruit looked so good, didn't it? When she saw that it was good. And the pride of life, it's desirable to make one wise. You want to speak to someone's pride. Tell them about how they can be even more wise in their own eyes. Is not from the Father, but it is from the world. Verse 17, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Did you know that the tree of life was in that garden as well? God brought up all this vegetation, all this fruit, all these vegetables that were good for mankind to eat, 
in the garden, in the midst of the trees, there was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. How come there was no conversation about the tree of life? How come they weren't drawn to that? Snake. You got a picture of a snake up here? Do you recognize this snake? Now, I, I got confused when I was thinking about this. I don't know why it came into my mind that I thought maybe I should share this. This is not Ka from Jungle Book. It's Sir Hiss. Hiss from Robin Hood. You remember those old Disney movies, Robin Hood, the fox? So this is Sir Hiss, and he would look into, is it King John? King John, maybe? Prince John, Prince John, look into his eyes and, and his eyes would go all funny and he would like hypnotize the prince to make him do whatever he wanted. It was subtle, it was cunning, it was tricky. And then I remembered that in the Jungle Book, Ka does the same thing, I think it's the same voice actor, with Mowgli and does the same eyes, same animation and everything. How interesting is it that Disney, way back in the day, has a cunning little crafty, tricky little snake as the evil imposter in the story that's trying to get the main character to bend to his will so that he can be the one to usurp the authority. I don't know, it's just interesting, popped into my mind. But one of the things I wanted to point out is Adam and Eve weren't hypnotized. It's not like they woke up with the fruit in their hand and they thought, oh no, what happened? What did we do? We didn't even know what we were doing. No, they knew what they were doing when they took the fruit. They weren't hypnotized, they weren't drugged. They didn't wake up with the fruit in their hand. They consciously made the decision to break God's only rule in the garden. Did God actually say, you're not going to die? God knows. He's withholding what's best from you. Take my word for it. He doesn't want you to enjoy all the good things in this world. Look at this fruit. It feels so good. It smells so good. And it'll give you the thing that you're missing out on in life. It will bring you satisfaction. It's desirable to make one wise. Every commercial has that hook, doesn't it? <laughs> Here's what you're missing. Here's what you need for satisfaction. But were Adam and Eve missing anything in life? They had a perfect relationship with a perfect heavenly father and a perfect marriage in a perfect garden where did this longing, this desire come from? You get into the origins of sin and evil and why did Satan actually fall? It's a pretty tricky conversation. But they gave in to the serpent's deception and they ate the fruit. Did God really say, does God really want what's best for you? Or is he holding something back? To me, it, it sounds like Song of Solomon chapter 2. This will be all lovey-dovey. Verse 11. For behold, the winter is past. The rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth. The time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its fruit. And the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. O oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face. Let me hear your voice. Your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. And then this part that I never really understood. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. 
See, Solomon's talking about this marriage relationship with his wife. He's talking about this beautiful garden, this beautiful thing they have, their love that they share between the two of them. He talks about the garden. Then he mentions these little foxes that will spoil the vineyard. I never understood that. I always thought about Samson when he tied the torches to the fox's tail and sent them through the harvest to burn all the fields. Do you remember that story? I thought that was interesting growing up in Sunday school. Here's what is so concerning about little foxes in your garden. They can't reach the fruit on the vine. So what they'll do instead, apparently, I've never experienced this, they will chew on the vine itself. They'll chew the stalk. They'll dig up the roots. They'll work away at the foundation of the vine so that eventually it dies, dries up and withers, and the fruit falls, and they can eat it off the ground. Easy pickings, low-hanging fruit. So they attack the foundation so that the fruit will fall. Is that interesting? Keep the little foxes out of the garden because they'll chew at the foundation of the plant until the fruit falls. Isn't that the snake's method? He's cunning. He's crafty. He's tricky. He's sly. He doesn't go for your kids directly. He attacks the deep values that are needed to raise them. He doesn't go for your spouse. He attacks the deep vows that unite you as husband and wife. He doesn't go for your family. He goes for the foundation on which family is built. And your family is the fruit that eventually falls if you give in to his deception. Haven't we witnessed that time and time again? Parents struggling in their faith, struggling in sin, but pride keeps them from confessing, turning it over, leaving it at the cross. Oh no, I've got it under control. I can stop whenever I want to. No one needs to know. What they don't know can't hurt them. It's not affecting anybody but me and I have it under control. Those little compromises become bigger compromises until the whole structure is compromised and the roots let go and the tree falls and great is its fall. And as we said last week, every family is broken by sin. Solomon says to his wife, look, we have this beautiful relationship in a beautiful garden, so let's be sure to take care of the little foxes before they eat away at the foundation of the vines. Adam and Eve didn't need anything from the snake. What they needed was to kick that slithering snake out of the garden. There's a snake in the garden. Where was Adam? Was he with her? See, I don't know. If, if he wasn't with her, then where was he? Because God said it's not good the man should be alone and he took the rib from his side and she was to be his helpmeet. They were to be together, one flesh, no man can separate. So if he wasn't there, shame on him. But what if he was there? Then she turns and gives the fruit to him. So if Adam's right there, why doesn't he say anything? What's he doing? Is he not paying attention? Men, have you ever, I've talked about this before, have you ever been there, but you're not really there? You know, you're thinking about a fire drill or you're thinking about a men's burnout and are they really going to melt the tires off that old Corvette? That would be pretty cool. And yes, we are, so you better come out. Or Doug is, I guess. Have you ever been there and not really been there? Is Adam there, but he's not really there for his wife? He never spoke up like, uh, Eve, uh, do you think maybe, uh, do you, do you remember what, uh, I hate to interrupt here, but, uh, 
Do you remember God said that, uh, that one rule there? Do you remember that? Do you know? Like something, speak up. Where's his spine? Where's his backbone? Where's his voice? Snake's got his tongue or what? Didn't God tell him to have dominion over creation, over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, over every creeping thing that creeped on the earth? Why didn't they kick that creepy snake out of the garden? Why didn't, why didn't Adam just like take care of it right there? And he stands back and he lets his wife engage in this conversation. I don't know what he's doing back there, what his face looks like, or if his hands are folded, or if he's just, I don't know, twiddling his thumbs. What is he doing? Now, Steve had a lot to say about men last week. Men are to protect their wives. Men who understand God's design for male headship would rather die than harm women because Christ loved his church and gave himself for her. Let me say this. Men, fathers, husbands, uncles, male leaders and mentors, don't be Adam. We better not, we better not stand by while that, while that ugly snake slithers in to our homes and our families. Too many men have fallen and their families have fallen because we're sitting back silent. Men, do you hear me on this? Because this frustrates me. When we stand back and we don't step up as spiritual leaders in our home, and we sit back with our arms folded, twiddling our thumbs while the enemy slithers into our very homes and talks to our families and gets their attention while we're disengaged or disinterested or there and not really there. Isn't this part of the creation mandate? Isn't this part of man's responsibility to be spiritual leaders in their homes and for their families? Adam was passive, he was disengaged, he was disinterested, he was shirking responsibility, he was failing to lead. He was failing to protect his wife. He was silent. And guess what? When he was found out, he pointed the finger at her. You know, he's still held responsible. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, because he stood by and did nothing, death through sin, death spread to all men because all have sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. There was a law in the garden. It was God's rule not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Verse 14. Yet death reigned from who? Adam is held responsible to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. 
Adam is held responsible for sin entering the world. Eve's name is not written there. It's Adam's name on the record. He stood silent. He pointed the blame on his wife. Men, there is an evil one fighting for your family. Get on the armor of God so that you can stand against the wiles of the devil. Stay alert as a watchman over your family. Be on guard for your enemy prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You wouldn't think twice if you were walking in the woods this afternoon and a black bear jumped out to get in front of your family, wouldn't you? This is your spiritual opportunity to step up. But this is part of the creation mandate. This is part of headship, part of our duties as men. If the boat's going down, I'm sorry, men, but it's women and children first. If there's a fire, I'm sorry, men, but it's women and children and the elderly and those who struggle with mobility first, as we're going to practice at the end of the sermon. If we run out of seating, sorry, men, but you're going to be the first who are asked to stand and provide a seat for women and children and for the elderly. Part of Adam's role was to guard the garden against false teaching because God gave Adam his rule directly. Eve was Adam's helpmeet, not to be above him, not to be below him, but to be by his side. We are a complementarian ministry. We believe the truth in God's word that men and women are equal. We're created in the image of God with inherent worth and value and dignity, but we're different from one another. We're created male and female. That includes different roles. We believe both are called to serve. Both are called to be part of the mission, to exercise their gifts in the church, to engage in being disciples who make disciples. That's our mission. But we reserve the roles of elders and deacons for men in the church. The pastoral epistles, Timothy and Titus, outline male eldership over the church. And then in marriage and in the family, read Ephesians 5. Men are to be the spiritual leaders in their homes, to love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Men are to lead their family like a servant, like Christ is the head of his church. We can see how this plays out. When the father is engaged spiritually, the statistics skyrocket for engagement in the mission, for spiritual health, for well-being of the family, for being engaged in church body life. And I need to say this. Thank God for all of the women who step up when their husband is disengaged and disinterested. I've been to so many churches where that's the case, where women have stepped up to lead the ministry, to make the children's ministry happen, to make the hospitality ministry happen, to keep the facility in check because the men are disengaged and disinterested. Praise God for you moms who bring your kids and teach them the ways of God. Praise God that you're leading spiritually for your children in the absence of a spiritual father. But men, we need to step up. We need to step into our role because there's a snake in the garden. You realize the garden was their home, right? God put them there. The snake entered their home. Is there a snake in your home? 2 Timothy, chapter 6. Sorry, 2 Timothy, I didn't write down the chapter, verses 6 and 7. 2 Timothy 1, 6. Oh, now I got the chapter wrong. Here's what this chapter says. <laughs> For among them are those who creep into households, 
to capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Doesn't that sound like the snake and Eve? Now, what does the term weak women mean? We need to challenge that one. I don't believe this is a statement against worth and dignity and value of women. The implication in verse 7 is, the problem is, these women don't have a grasp on the truth. They're not weak because they're women, they're weak because they don't know the truth. Always learning, never able to arrive at knowledge of the truth. Doesn't that sound like our generation? Don't we have so much information and so many voices and so many technology at our fingertips it's so hard to keep up with what is true, what is fake news, what is just clickbait, and the voices are constantly going. In our society, we're more confused than ever, we're more depressed than ever, we're more suicidal than ever, we value truth less than ever. If you want to talk further on that or read some articles, fill out the connect card, I would love to send those your way. The snake slithers his way into our homes with more lies than we have time or energy to combat. Turn to Matthew chapter 4 with the time that we have left. And the time that we have left is not much. This is Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. This was the reading reminder leading up to this Sunday. There are striking similarities between Jesus' conversation with the devil in the desert and Eve's conversation with the snake in the garden. So say this, there's a devil in the desert. All right, you're still with me. Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is after his baptism to mark the start of his earthly ministry. That term tempted simply means test. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, except that is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. It's not hopeless today for the family. It is a test. There's testing at every turn, but it's not hopeless. Raising teens in the internet age, navigating mental health, gender identity, economy, education, the uprooting of traditional family model. Along with the test, God is faithful and he will provide the way. Let's see how Jesus resists the devil's lies in a difficult time. Matthew 4 and verse 2. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I wonder if the snake pointed out the fruit to Eve because she was hungry. Do you ever go grocery shopping when you're hungry? You know what I'm talking about, Jeff? How does that play out for you? How does that play out for your grocery budget? If only our souls were so satisfied in our Savior that we didn't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Verse 3, the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The devil tries to plant this seed of doubt, this subtle, cunning, crafty little question, if, if you are the son of God, just do this little miracle. It's pretty simple. There's nobody else watching. It's just me and you. You're longing for something more. So step out, take control, make it happen. Use your miracle working power. Go get it. You dissatisfied at home in your marriage with your kids, with your parents. Well, take some matters into your own hands. Step out, go make it happen. That's what the devil says. How many of those lies whisper around our homes and we just keep scrolling through the videos that are sending this nonsense our way? Right into our kids and, and our, our spouses' ears over and over and over. 
Is your man not doing it for you no more? Is your woman not giving you no respect? Scroll, scroll. Hey, kids, you don't feel right as a boy or girl? Well, why don't you give something else a try? Scroll, scroll. And we just let these videos invade into our thoughts and minds and our actions. The devil tests Jesus. Devil's tactic starts really basic. Hunger. Just a little miracle, right? Nobody's going to know. You're the son of God, aren't you? Verse 4. But he answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Boom. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. He doesn't argue with the devil. He doesn't get into it. He doesn't go down his line of thinking. He just says, here's what God's word says on the matter. Doesn't yell, doesn't shout, doesn't wave his finger. He just quotes God's word, gives him the truth of scripture. Here's, here's, here's the rub. You're, you're not going to find satisfaction anywhere else. You're not going to find it by turning rocks to bread. You will find what you're looking for ultimately in the truth of God's word. So the devil tests Jesus again. If the lust of the flesh, that hunger that he feels doesn't work, then how about the pride, the pride of life? Verse five, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and he said to him, if you are the son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written. Do you know the devil knows the Bible? Do you know he can quote and misquote scripture to try and trip you up? It is written, he will command his angels concerning you. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil knows the truth, and yet he wants to blind you from it. You know, I'm convinced that deep down society really knows the truth. And that no matter what we try or where we go to, we're not going to find satisfaction. I think people really actually know that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. Having this, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, because that's what the devil his practices, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil has power over so much of our society today. We can see that at every turn, steering them from the truth. If there is no truth, there's no justice, there's no accountability, there's no right and wrong, there's no moral ethic. That makes you and your feelings the boss. That's where society is at. Disciplining your kids doesn't feel good in the moment. Being true to your spouse may be difficult. Honoring your mother and father may be a struggle. But praise God that what is right and wrong is not in accord to our feelings. It's the truth of God's word. Jesus again stands on the truth of God's word as his defense. Look at verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. That's the lust of the eyes, isn't it? Now, I don't want you to think that I'm anti-technology and anti-internet because we are using technology to broadcast this service on the internet right now. But just a, just a quick example. I was scrolling through this past week, 
quick little video. I think it was Mr. Beast. I never watched Mr. Beast. If you don't know who he is, you don't need to know who he is. He's going around trying the door handle on expensive cars. I kind of like cars. And so I thought, well, just watch this. It's a matter of seconds long, right? And so the first car he tries is $300,000. And it's got a pretty basic door handle. The next one's like a million. It's got a little more confusing door handle. And then he goes to cars that are tens of millions of dollars. And it gets more and more confusing. Maybe there is a door handle, maybe there isn't. I'm watching this video and I'm thinking, that's crazy. And then I scroll on to the next one. And then I started thinking, are there actually cars that are tens of millions of dollars that expensive? And so I started researching and looking around and, and if they're antique and if they're built by so-and-so and used by such-and-such, such, then maybe. And, and I'm thinking like, I don't, I don't need uh, tens of millions of dollars car, right? That, that doesn't make practical sense in Atlanta, Canada. Not on our roads, right? I don't want that parked in my garage. I don't want people in my community seeing me drive. It would be stolen. It would be gone. It would be ridiculous. The pastor's driving that. How does that? And then I thought to myself, I'm putting a lot of thought into multi-million dollar cars that I'm probably never going to see in my lifetime, let alone sit in or own. And then I thought, hmm, that's such a, just a subtle, little, simple video, trying the door handle on expensive cars. Nothing wrong with that. But then my mind started going down that track, and this sense of dissatisfaction just sort of crept in when I thought, I know what I paid for my vehicle, and people own these vehicles? What do they do for a living? How much money do they have? Do you see how those thoughts just like so subtly and you know what? It might not be sin to go down that road to research expensive cars. That's cool. I enjoy that. But it's taking my attention somewhere else, isn't it? Anyway, just some thoughts. The devil takes Jesus to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You ever talk to a salesman, and they keep repeating the phrase, Look, I'll be honest with you. You know what that's like? Look, I'll be honest with you, Josh. Honestly, you want the honest truth? Honestly. And it makes you think, You're not being honest with me, are you? The devil's just going to put it up front. Hey, look. All the kingdoms of the earth, all their glory, I'll give you this. All you have to do, Jesus, just for this one-time limited offer, is bow the knee and worship me right here, right now. And then it's yours. All the kingdoms of the earth and all their glory are yours. There's a lot more of a catch than that, isn't there? Jesus kicked the devil out. What the first Adam should have done, the last Adam did as exemplified here, but also in conquering the grave and his victory over sin and death and hell and the devil, Jesus kicked the devil out. He kicked the snake out of the garden. And he clarifies that the tests of the devil really boil down to one big question. Am I going to worship God or am I not? Remember what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So that's the question. Worship is all about attention, adoration, focus. So are we worshiping God as we're actively giving our time and attention and all the other little pieces of the pie to other things? Or are we actually going to worship God? 
Next week, we're going to get into some of the specific implications of the devil's lies on modern families. We're going to talk about delayed adolescence, individualism, affluence, and these really tie into what we just talked about today. Food, power, prestige, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. We're going to put some discussion questions up here on screen. You can take a screenshot or find them on the website. You can find the printed version of the outline of the whole series with the questions in the lobby on the table. Your life group leader has more questions, so you can take the conversation further. I really encourage you to get into a group, grab the discussion guide, meet with a friend over coffee, discuss these things for yourself. We didn't really get into the desire of the flesh, the desire of the spirit, and the the contrary nature between the two of them. Take some time, look up those scriptures, Galatians chapter 5. Really consider why the devil's lies seem so appealing to our flesh. Romans chapter 1, read that. It would be a great precursor to our sermon next Sunday. So let me end with this. Before we pray, before there's a fire alarm, before we take a walk down to the muster point at the maintenance building, let me end with this. Jesus showed his power over the devil in the desert. Not by miracles. He didn't run away from him walking on the water. He didn't give him a witty retort that we could never think of in the moment. He just quoted scripture to him. He just gave him the truth of God's word. Dads, are you fighting for the faith of your family by rejecting Satan's lies with God's truth? Moms, are you meditating on God's word like a tree planted by the waters which bears fruits Its leaves don't wither, even when the season is contrary, even when society disagrees. Kids, are you hiding God's word in your heart that you might not sin against God? There's a snake in the garden. There's a devil in the desert. Satan is active in our society. He's the God of this age, the Bible says. There's an evil one who's forcefully against your family in 2023. Stand on the truth today. Don't give in to the devil's lies. Would you join me as we pray? Would you stand to your feet? We'll pray together, conclude our service, and we'll see what happens from there. Let's pray. God, we want to thank you so much for the truth of your word today. And if not for the truth of your word, then we would have nothing to stand on, especially from this platform. God, we thank you that we can look to your word, and Jesus, we can see how you responded to the tactics of the devil with God's truth. God, would you help us to be in your truth? Would you help us to know it, to not just commit it to memory, but to bury it deep within our hearts so that when the time comes, we can respond with your truth because we're nurturing it, we're living in it, we're disciplined in it. We talk about it with our families, with our kids, with our spouse, with our friends, with our coworkers. God, help us to engage in your truth so that we can defeat the enemy's lies. God, we pray against the work of the enemy in our world today. And we know the answer to that is the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ over sin and death and hell. So Holy Spirit, would you actively be working, be calling people to yourself by faith. Help us to plant seeds and to water them and to show people the love of God through acts, through words. God, help us to be in prayer for those around us that they would know the life-changing, transforming, chain-breaking power of Jesus to free them from the bonds of darkness and from the cloak that the enemy has over their eyes. God, give us grace in our dealings with our world, with our families, with our church today, Father. Help us to be your hands and feet. In Jesus' name, amen.